This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we're honored to have House Speaker Scott Psyche join us for the first half of our show today. Good morning, Speaker. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. You know, I, I should uh, let our listeners know that we did initially invite uh, both you and uh, uh, Senate President Ron Kochi in uh, at the beginning of session. Uh, you both agreed to come into our studios to take questions from our listeners, but uh, unfortunately, we were preempted by the uh, impeachment trial. But I, I thank you for uh, for taking part today. Sure. Thanks for inv- um, inviting me today. You know, um, at the beginning of session in your speech, you talked about how since 2016, 12,000 residents have left Hawaii. And I know we were hearing stories anecdotally, but I just know in my circle, I know of two former colleagues who are uh, packing it up um, at the end of this month. They're selling their homes and are moving to the mainland. And I also know of, I believe, two nurses. Uh, one, I think, has been there for like 40 years. She has moved to Vegas, and the other one is uh, is also uh, planning to move there as well. You are obviously concerned about this a departure of our residents. Yes, um, Catherine, we're very concerned. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned in my opening day speech, um, um, it's at the point now where all of us know someone or or are related to someone who is moving uh, from Hawaii to another state, um, and largely because of uh, for ec- for economic reasons. I mean, it's impacting every family at this point in Hawaii. And that's why um, the legislature um, worked uh, on this um, over the summer. So last year, um, the Hawaii Community Foundation and the Aloha United Way teamed up to publish a report. It's called the Alice Report. And it's basically a report that documents um, and provides data on the financial circumstances of Hawaii families. And one of the findings in that report is that 47%, 47% of Hawaii households cannot make ends meet. Um, and this 47% represents 214,000 households in Hawaii. Um, this report really you know, sent shockwaves through the legislature uh, combined with the out-migration statistics that you mentioned. This is the second consecutive year of out-migration uh, from Hawaii. But this created a shockwave of the legislature because, um, and it's almost as if it's at a tipping point where we know we knew that we had to do something. And so the House and the Senate worked together over the summer on a package of legislation that we believe will directly address uh, and help Hawaii families. Um, there are four parts to our package. Uh, one is um, an income income uh, package that consists of a minimum wage and a tax credit, tax increased tax credit. Uh, the second is an early education proposal. The third is a school facilities um, construction pr- uh, program. And the fourth is uh, developing more affordable housing. And you uh, live in Kaka'ako, and I don't know what you see from from the building, you know, where you live. But we often hear stories about about how in the evenings you look at these luxury high rises, and and like half of them are dark. Yeah, it's very it's very troubling, and you know that is one of the reasons why um, in twenty uh, in in twenty fourteen. Um, when the Hawaii Community Development Authority, HCDA, began, began to approve permits for some of these high-rises. And, you know, I mean, and please remember that there's a number of high-rises in Kakako today that were not here, were not built in 2014. They were not existent in 2014. A number of them have been built just over the past five years. But in 2014, you know, we led a community effort um, against HCDA because we felt that HCDA was just ramrodding and rubber stamping these development uh, applications in Kaka'ako. And that was one of the concerns that we raised, and that's something that I, I've always mentioned, which is that Kaka'ako was, uh, is an area under state jurisdiction 
uh, the state of Hawaii, the state taxpayers, paid for all of the infrastructure in Kaka'ako. And so whenever development occurs in this area, the question that we need to ask first and foremost is how will this development benefit all of Hawaii's residents and all of Hawaii's taxpayers? There is a broader purpose to Kaka'ako. It should be a mixed-use area. It should not be an area that just um, that just um, assists those you know, with um, with um, a lot of financial means, there is a broader purpose to that area, and so and this ties into the approach that we've taken in our affordable housing package this year. Um, our package is designed to accelerate the construction of units that will help middle class, the middle class, the middle income gap group in Hawaii. And so many of our programs are. Uh, housing programs are uh, geared towards the lower income level, but it's left out the middle group. And our our package is designed to build more houses for the middle group. Um, and the typical example that we give is, you know, a family that consists of two teachers or uh, or a police officer and a teacher or two government workers. I mean that is often what you find within the gap group. And we need to provide a relief to those residents. We know that uh, the lawmakers do want to accelerate uh, housing, affordable housing along the rail route. Um, you folks are, are looking at UH West Oahu, uh, also um, you know other lands, uh, state land uh, that could be developed quickly. Yes. Um, we want to take advantage of, of um, underutilized state land. Um, you know, the whole one of the whole uh, premises behind rail was to um, was the hope that it would lead to housing development along the rail line. And you know, the legislature decided this year that we would take this on, that we would um, really up the ante for development uh, in those areas that stretch from. Kalailoa, all the way down through uh, West Oahu and uh, Kali, uh, Waipahu, um, all the way down there. We need to develop more houses along the rail line. You know, the bulk of the land that is adjacent to the rail line is state is state land, and we need to take advantage of that. You know, we did solicit uh, questions from our listeners. Uh, we did uh, get one uh, uh, this uh, this morning or over the weekend, uh, who had a question about uh, the uh, issue that we were talking about earlier about uh, retirement? Hello, my name is Christine. I'm from Honolulu. There is a retirement savings crisis in Hawaii. People are not saving enough to allow them to live here without government support, and Social Security is not enough to live on either. Does the House support programs like Oregon Saves, Cal Savers, and Illinois Secure Choice. That would make it easier for working families to save their own money to better their own futures and keep them out of poverty when they get get older and retire. Thank you so much. So what do you say to Christine, Speaker? Okay, so thanks for that uh, question. This is a proposal that was um, raised um, maybe about two years ago that would... um, create a state agency that would run a retirement savings program. Um, and the proposal that came in was um, to um, require employees to participate uh, in this program. Uh, fun- funds would be automatically, automatically deducted from their paychecks and then uh, uh, placed into this um, uh, retirement, retirement fund. Um, it's a it's a proposal that we spent a lot of time um, analyzing, and we did meet with the interest groups that were that were advocating for this proposal. Um, you know, at that at that point, uh, we we felt our we felt that a program like this, which is basically it was basically creating a state version of a social security program. Um, we felt that for one thing, it needs to be voluntary. Workers should be uh, should not be required to participate because 
may have other programs, savings programs in place already. So there were some there were some um, questions that we had on some of the major elements of this proposal. Uh, it's something that we need to continue to um, analyze and to consider because we do know that people are not saving enough for their retirement. Um, and then when that happens, um, people become more reliant upon government services and government programs uh, when they reach retirement age. Yeah, if I recall right, I think it was Senator Laura Thielen who might have authored, I think, one of the early bills on this issue. Um, what, what, what's your sense? Do you, you think that, that the lawmakers will, uh, in both houses will come together on this? I'm not sure if it will happen this year. It's, this is uh, something that would happen at a future time. Uh, this year, the focus has really been on our package, the package that I described earlier, the education housing and the income uh, income package uh, those that's been the focus this year between okay. the House and the Senate okay we uh, did get a number of questions via email uh, this one has to do with electric vehicle driver benefits such as single occupancy HOV lane access free metered parking and f- uh, free parking at state and county garages uh, which I believe is sunsetting. Uh, June 30th, 2020. The question is, why did House Speaker Psyche kill House Bill 2558, a measure which would have extended Act 168 by referring it to four committees, which essentially caused it to miss key legislative deadlines? Um, So we, you know, we recognize the importance of um, uh, promoting uh, electric vehicles. Um, There's going to be a point in time where hopefully all of all of the vehicles in Hawaii will be uh, electric or maybe hybrid or hybrid vehicles. Um, you know, I myself have a hi- hybrid uh, car that I drive. Um, the, uh, a few years ago, the legislature uh, enacted a statute that provided for free parking at the airports and in county parking stalls. It does sunset on June 30, 2020, in about four months. Uh, one of the issues um, there is that, at least with the airports, um, that the, the usage has, has increased. So the, the state uh, airport system is losing revenue uh, from, this, from, this, um, from this benefit. Um, over the last two years, just at Honolulu alone, at the Honolulu Airport, the amount of revenue loss has doubled from about $1.5 million a year to $3 million, $3 million a year. Um, there is a question whether or not the federal government will allow the state to continue a program like this, because as you know, the federal government helps to subsidize airports, and there is a federal rule that says that if the state takes any actions to divert revenue from the airport system, then the federal government may withhold federal funding for airport improvement. Do you think so that we, is one of the issues that, that has to be addressed. Do you think we ought to just have electric cars pay something at the airport? Well, if we, if we provide incentives for uh, electric vehicles, there are, other, there are other alternatives that we could consider, and I've asked some of the organizations that are advocating for more incentives to come up with different ideas. Um, I think that one one incentive um, is to provide more um, charging facilities. I think there needs to be more charging facilities at lower cost to encourage people to, to have EVs. Um, there are different ways to address this. Parking, Free parking is not the only way to incentivize EV users. All right, we have another question that came in from Chris via email. Uh, Chris writes, my child will be entering public school next year. I'm concerned the legislature isn't investing in our public school students. I understand there are a number of classrooms that don't have a real teacher teaching our kids. What will the, will, will the impact of this be on the future prospects of our Hawaii children in our long-term economy? Shouldn't this be addressed first before the legislature rolls out the early childhood education for three- and four-year-olds? Like what was announced in the joint package? So preschool and uh, and 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 uh, uh, 
elementary and, and intermediate and high school go hand in hand um, because as we know the research shows that, that the more prepared children are when they enter kindergarten, kinder, kindergarten then the more successful they'll be throughout their um, educational career. Um, we currently have um, a gap group of children who are not able to participate in early learning programs, mostly for financial reasons, and that is why we have taken this up as a priority issue this year. And you know, ha and having said that, um, you know, the legislature um, has always been uh, supportive of public education spending. Um, this is one of the top areas, um, one of the top program areas where that we that we spend our tax tax dollars on. Um, I don't. I, I'm, I know that each member of the legislature uh, wants public schools to, to succeed. They want kids to succeed. Uh, it is always a party area for us. I know the uh, teachers union, you know, really wants to find another way to help fund raises to retain the teachers we have and to recruit better quality teachers. Um, wh where are we at with um, th those some of those proposals? Well, the the uh, Department of Education uh, came in with a proposal this year that had been negotiated with the teachers union to help fund, to increase funding for um, the um, teachers who are in um, the high turnover districts um, and also a proposal to um, compress salaries for teachers who are at the higher uh, and who have more seniority um, in the system, and there is legislation to address both of these areas. Um, it does require funding, um, so it's something. It's an issue that the House and the Senate will have to uh, take up. And the other other thing is that um, um, you know, just as a general matter, uh, compensation for public employees is uh, something that is decided uh, by the the, work, the unions that represent public workers and the governor. So the governor and the public unions every two years negotiate salary increases for the members. If the governor and the union come to an agreement, then that proposal comes down to the legislature for funding. So our job is to fund agreements. And um, you know, the legislature has always funded agreements that are sent down by the governor and the unions. You know, uh, we uh, also have a, n a number of bills that are being heard at the legislature about, uh, you know, what to do about early education. Uh, and I think the devil's in the details. You know, the, the, the bills have proposed moving that mission, I think, from, you know, uh, over to the Department of Housing and Human Services. So there's been a lot of back and forth about how do we best do what we want to do, which is to um, educate more of these, you know, younger children to give them a better head start. Where do you sit on that? So one of the reasons that we are now in this situation where people are leaving Hawaii and where people can't afford to leave here uh, is because sometimes state government is too siloed and um, is not flexible. You know, the test of, I think the test of any organization, including state government, is whether it is flexible enough so that it can adapt to changing circumstances. And one of the issues that we have sometimes with our state agencies, I mean, although there's really hardworking people there, that sometimes these agencies are not flexible enough and are not doing enough to be proactive and to head off some of these um, issues that implode at some point. So that is why um, our our our, pre, our early learning proposal um, is seeking to consolidate uh, early learning programs under one agency. Right now, we have um, different uh, several programs that are administered by different agencies. These functions need to be coordinated and consolidated under one one entity that will take the lead. So you're basically saying we need to move on this quickly. Yes, yes. So whether it's creating a new agency or, or a new mission under a different uh, agency, something's got to 
move. Something's got to be done. We want to move because we're willing. We're willing to. The legislature is willing to make the structural changes. We're willing to fund these programs. We're willing to help pave the way for implementation. But we do need the agencies to 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 execute all of this for us. Okay, and we have a couple of questions on minimum wage. Uh, please ask Speaker Psyche why a minimum wage of $17 an hour is not part of the working families package, HB 2541. Uh, almost half of our working families are on the edge of survival. Uh, let's see. Uh, apparently the bill is currently looking to raise the minimum to $13 an hour by 2024. Does the Speaker really think this will provide the basics to our working family? Uh, another question to piggyback on that from uh, Dave he says, given the high cost of living and the consensus that the de within the Democratic Party that the minimum wage should be at least 15, why has the House, under your leadership, been so hesitant to make a significant increase to this minimum wage? So I just want to emphasize that the approach that we're taking um, is a package approach. Um, um, we are not just addressing the minimum wage, but we are going to provide tax relief to uh, to this group of workers. Um, one of the, uh, so basically the proposal consists of not just an increase in the minimum wage, but also um, expansion of the, of the earned income tax credit. We will be making our state earned income tax credit uh, permanent and refundable. So as you know, the state earned income tax credit uh, provides um, relief basically to working to working families and it is an, it's an extension of the federal federal EITC um, so we'll be making that uh, permanent and we'll be making it refundable meaning that if the amount of the tax credit exceeds the person's tax liability then they will receive uh, that difference in the form of a, of a refund um, the second um, the second proposal that we have is to increase the food credit for the SCAP group. Um, the credit will be increased $250 per exemption or per, per claimant. So for example, for a family of four, the exemption would, the exemption would be $150 times four for a total of $600. You know, these are, these are really, um, significant tax proposals because when you look at the numbers, um, um, currently there are 249 claims that are made for the food credit. 249,000 people in Hawaii uh, receive the food credit. Um, there are 55,000 people who claim the state earned income tax credit. So by increasing these two credits, uh, we will be direct, providing direct financial relief to working, to working families. So the approach is a, a, a multi-pronged approach to kind of take the edge off as opposed to one, one pill that's going to solve the problem. Yes, and, you know, and what we've stated before um, when it comes to, to wages um, is that um, Hawaii law requires employers to provide medical insurance to workers who are working more than 19 hours a week. And the reality for employers is that the cost of this health benefit, this medical benefit, increases every year. The state insurance commissioner tells us that the average annual premium for the medical, a medical plan is about $7,000 a year. Um, in about 10 years, the projection is that this cost will double. Wow. So um, that is a concern for us because we don't want to see a situation where uh, employers start to cut hours to dis so that they can disqualify people from receiving medical insurance. And I guess that kind of goes back to folks who think they can't afford to retire here uh, and live here in Hawaii. Um, if I could uh, change subject matter here, uh, Anya, I know uh, red light cams has been a very 
oh, contentious subject. I think, you know, you were around when uh, th this was just a hot topic uh, at the legislature, but it, it appears to be just like sailing through. Yeah, so actually I, I did introduce a bill this year to um, create a uh, pilot red light program. And what I did was I basically volunteered my district, the Kakako area, uh, for this program um, because, you know, my district uh, has three of the top, top most dangerous intersections uh, on Oahu. And I feel that a red light camera um, would help to minimize accidents that occur in this area. Um, this bill is still alive. Um, it'll be heard by the House Finance well, it was heard by the House Finance Committee, so it'll cross over to the Senate. I would ask um, listeners to please call the prosecutor's office to encourage their support, because the prosecutor's office has been testifying against this legislation this year. Yeah, but it's just interesting, just with the public outcry that we saw, you know, years back. Um, so I guess we'll see what happens. You know, we only have a couple more minutes, uh, Speaker. Uh, anything else you'd like to underscore, just from where you sit? Um, I just wanted to emphasize again that the House and the Senate um, have worked you know, together on a package that is addressed um, to the middle-income the middle income group. Um, we know that um, people are leaving Hawaii for financial reasons, um, and we want to stop that trend from increasing. Yeah, it, it, it is a, a big problem, and... Uh, uh, hopefully, as uh, lawmakers work through in, in the next couple of months here uh, during session, that you can come to a meeting of the minds and f and find some vehicles that uh, you both can uh, be comfortable with. Yeah, and so far it's been, I think it's been very positive. Um, the House and the Senate have been working together uh, because both sides realize that we need, we need to take action. We need to do something. We need to deliver some results this year. All right. Thanks so much, Speaker. We really appreciate your time with us this morning. Thanks, Catherine. All right. That Take was care. House Speaker Scott Psyche talking about key issues in play this session. The legislature is on a five-day recess and is back in hearings on Thursday. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. And now it's your Backyard Quiz time. The Honolulu Elks Lodge 616 has been an institution in Waikiki since 1901. It is one of 2,000 lodges of the International Benevolent Protective Order of the Elks. The Fraternal Order was founded to promote and practice the four cardinal virtues of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity, and to promote the welfare and enhance the happiness of its members, and to quicken the spirit of American patriotism and to cultivate good fellowship. The Honolulu Elks also has the distinction of having a beachfront lodge. The current building was built in 1960 and recently completed renovations. Prior to that, the Elks used the James Castle's old four-story home named Kainalu. Castle's widow sold it to the Elks upon his passing in 1918. But prior to that, which royal governor owned the land where the Waikiki Elks Club now stands? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. Hormonal changes are a fact of life, but many of us underestimate how much stress and lifestyle habits affect our bodies and don't know what to do about it. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about all natural solutions to common hormone imbalances as we age. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. 30 Americans features works by 30 contemporary artists connected by their African-American cultural history through June 21st. HonoluluMuseum.org. Honolulu Civil Beat regularly brings us a segment we call our Reality Check. Today, reporters Christina Jedra and Marcel Henri have a story about rail and a red flag raised by an employee about possible improper spending. But this morning will be Civil Beat Managing Editor Jim Simon who joins us. Hi there. Hi. Nice to be here, Catherine. Yes. So um, I was reading that uh, article this morning with great interest because, you know, this was one of the things I think that was brought up you know, as potentially one of the things that the feds are looking at in their investigation. Yeah, I think that's the sort of most important takeaway in in this story is that um, some of the, I shouldn't say findings, but some of what got issues highlighted in the report sort of serve as a precursor to um, some of the issues now that are being raised in the federal investigation, which particularly uh, concerns potential illegal activities in the uh, real estate transaction by Hart. The story that Christina and Marcel wrote really focuses on a 2016 internal and confidential Hart report that uh, Civil Beat obtained through a public records request recently. And the report looked at concerns back in 2015, I think is when the actual concerns were raised, raised by a hard employee, two hard employees, but one raised uh, questions about the improper handling of millions of do federal dollars that were in the project um, and said she faced retaliation, including a request for a resignation for reporting it and bringing it, bringing it up. Um, some of the issues, as I said, appear to be a kind of precursor to the current federal investigation. Um, and I think one of the most important takeaways is that is that the internal investigation looked at alleged problems with the project's real estate transactions, uh, particularly drawdowns or reimbursements that came out of the federal money. Um, that Hart uh, had obtained from the Federal Transportation Administration. And that was as early as 2015. And that was also years before Hart's current director, Arnie Robbins, admitted uh, some of those issues or related issues publicly in February 2018. Right, and he um, replaced, um, Andy Robbins replaced uh, uh, Dan Grabowskis, and uh, he left... Uh, not under the best circumstances. <laughs> right. Yeah, and much of this uh, investigation or report, I don't, I don't know that I classify as investigation, but um, the report also, Grabowskis is really the focus of this report. And the report also examined claims from another woman about alleged abusive behavior toward employees by Grabowskis and allegations of wrongdoing. I think it's important to note that the allegations of wrongdoing by Grabowskis uh, were not substantiated. Uh, for, but the investigator did find that some of Grabowskis' behavior 
could be seen by all reasonable uh, by a reasonable person as sort of intimidating or offensive. He would yell at people or swear at people, um, but they didn't substantiate the allegations. And it's also important to note that they never substantiated any specific wrongdoing about the improper drawdowns from the uh, federal grant money as well for uh, some of the rail contracts. Those were not substantiated at the time. But the report certainly highlighted knowledge of those issues uh, floating around Hart. Right, and, and I uh, know that uh, uh, there's been some question about, you know, what did the board know and, you know, when did it know mm-hmm. it? That, you know, was this flagged to them and could they have um, pursued you know, some of this line of questioning? Yeah, I think that's a key question here. And what the report really does is it raised some questions like you mentioned about why these alleged problems with federal funding weren't really found or fixed sooner. Um, If someone was at least making allegations, while they weren't substantiated at the time, there was clearly – concerns being uh, raised by employees. And the heart of those was, um, heart of one of those allegations, which again, was not found substantiated, um, was that Grabowski intimidated that person into withholding any info from the board and covered up performance deficiencies. Um, And those all, many of those went to those drawbacks, went to those drawdowns. Um, and one of those, one of the things that was kind of one of the most alarming parts of this uh, uh, report is that, despite there being heated disagreements apparently within the agency about some of these drawdowns and stuff, the investigators or the people compiling this report were told that no one except one person, whose name was redacted, claimed to have any authoritative knowledge about grants management within the agency, which is kind of astonishing. Yeah, um, well, we'll have to see uh, what the uh, FBI investigation uh, ferrets out uh, as they go through their process. But thanks so much, well, Jim. Thank you. That was Managing Editor Jim Simon with today's Reality Check. To read the story on rail by Christina Jedra and Marcel Henri, visit civilbeat.org. <laughs> Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Taormina Sicilian Cuisine on Waikiki Beach Walk at Lures and Appetito Craft Pizza and Wine Bar in the Outrigger Ohana East Hotel. Two takes on Italian cuisine in Waikiki. This week on OTM, the Bloomberg campaign is spending millions on influencers and meme creators, but don't turn to cable news for the smart take. Here we are, months away from the election, and they are so ignorant of these massive sea changes that are happening online. I'm never getting invited back on cable news again. (laughs) Don't miss this week's On the Media from WNYC. Tonight at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the U.S. Census Bureau, dedicated to providing current information about the people of the United States, now hiring census takers for the 2020 census. More at 2020census.gov jobs. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with UH astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence. With your Monday Stargazer, they give us an update on the once bright star, Betelgeuse. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can look for in our dark skies. As usual, getting the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. 
So this week's stargazers, the planet Venus, will be bright and easily visible throughout the evening until it sets at around 9.30. The moon is a mere waxing crescent this week and as such will make for a very attractive addition to our dark skies. And I understand you've got an update on a story that we've had several times on the show, the interesting story of Betelgeuse. Yes, the continuing saga of the star Betelgeuse, known in Hawaii as Kaulua Koko. It continues. This once very bright star has been dimming quite dramatically over the past year, and new images captured by the Very Large Telescope, or VLT, in Chile have shown us just how drastic the change has been. These new images of the star have shown not only a decrease in brightness, but also that the star has appeared to change shape, something very unusual indeed. Change shape. That's one I'm sure that people are curious about. Explain how something like that could happen. Well, red supergiant stars are not your typical tidy, fun balls of stellar joy, such as the sun. They are incredibly cantankerous as stars go, and they are so large that their outer layers can become completely distended, so they don't really resemble round stars at all. And that means if you got close enough, it wouldn't appear round like the sun? No. And one of the theories regarding this change in brightness is that these outer layers are undergoing some sort of turmoil, perhaps as material in these layers cools and descends back down to low altitudes. And Chris, there's been some discussion this thing could go supernova. What's your take on that? Well, personally, I think that's not what's going on here. I believe that what we are seeing is merely the acting out of an old cantankerous star that's approaching the end of its days. However, that said, the universe is full of surprises, and our knowledge of these supergiant stars is limited. So all we can really do is stay tuned. And that'll be on a future Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we were talking about the Elks. The Benevolent Protective Order of the Elks was initially created in New York in 1867. Throughout its history, it had, it's had many famous members, including U.S. Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy. The Elks made uh, their way to Hawaii in 1901 with the start of Lodge 616, the Honolulu Elks. The Honolulu chapter had several locations in downtown Honolulu during the early years, but settled into its current home in 1918 when James Castle's wife sold the home to the Elks after he died. He had built his four-story home, Kainalu, in the 1890s. The former Castle home was demolished in 1958, and the current building was erected in 1960. Prior to Castle, though, the home was, or the site was home to High Chief Boki and his wife, High Chiefess Liliha. Boki served as governor of Oahu during the 1820s, and Liliha was a governor during the 1930s. Congratulations to Mary of Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd. HonoluluMuseum.org. Aloha! This is Uncle Wayne of Uncle Wayne and the Howling Dog Band, inviting you to join us in HPR's Atherton Studio on Saturday, March 14th. It's a morning of children's music full of aloha and positivity that the whole family can enjoy. Cakey 7 and under get in free, but space is limited, so reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by the Cole Academy Child Development Centers. A powerful exhibit about the Kalopapa settlement for Hansen's disease patients winds up this week. It's concluding with a talk at Windward Community College tomorrow night. We talked to Maui's Val Monson about the history behind this traveling exhibit. So our, our organization's name is Ka Ohana o Kalaupapa, you know, the family of Kalaupapa. And, you know, we first started talking about forming this organization in 1996 
when we had a workshop at Kalapapa. There were a lot more people living at Kalapapa at that time, probably about 70 people. And already there were concerns about the future of Kalapapa. And so our leader was Bernard Punikaya. I don't know if you remember Bernard. Yes. He was one of the great leaders in the history of Kalapapa, in the history of Hawaii, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, Bernard was just a very wise man who, who was always, he always saw years ahead of, years ahead. And so it was his vision that we form an organization to start bringing together family members and friends to make sure that the future of Kalapapa was directed by people who knew the residents of Kalapapa, who knew what they wanted. Um, and so we started talking about this in 1996. We didn't uh, officially organize until uh, we came together in 2003 at, at Kalapapa again. And uh, Bernard, again, uh, was our leader. And that was when we officially decided to organize. Our mission was to advocate for the people of Kalapapa when they needed help, developing education programs, which this exhibit is part of that, and then working uh, in partnership for preservation of the history and the, the stories of the people of Kalapapa. So how are you able then to reestablish these ties? When we first started the Ohana, we really didn't expect to be doing so much of this work. So one of the, the things that the community asked us to do at that very first meeting, we wanted to know what, what priorities our Ohana should have. And, it, and the people of Kalapapa wanted one of those priorities to be to establish the Kalapapa Memorial, um, which we, through discussions, decided would list the names of everyone who was sent to Kalapapa. And so in 2007, our historian, Anway Law, who's an, an author and who also gave us a presentation at Windward Community College a month ago, so Anway began compiling the names that were on file at the Hawaii State Archives. And she compiled the first 5,000 names in the, year of, in, the, in, the year 2000, in the summer of 2007. Those were people who were sent to Kalaupapa between 1866 and 1896. And we had an article in the Hawaii Catholic Herald. Uh, I still remember the headline. It was Remember My Name. And I went to Kalapapa a couple, two or three weeks later, and we had a small stack of mail, which was unusual for us. We weren't getting mail at that time. And it was letters from people asking, you know, did, did you find, are, is my great-grandfather there? Do you know anything about my great-aunt? Do you know anything about my cousin or my mother? And it was just overwhelming to us. We weren't expecting that. And it has just grown over the years where when people hear about the research that we have compiled about people of Kalapapa, we hear from more and more, more family members asking if we know more about their uh, relatives who were sent there. One of the things that you know, we have been trying to do as an ohana is bring the voices of the people of Kalapapa back into this history. Uh, the people themselves have been left out. Uh, of the history that they helped to create. You know, it's most of the history over the years is primarily on Father Damien, uh, who, of course, was a remarkable man, and Mother Marianne, a remarkable woman, who certainly lived holy lives. But the people of Kalapapa were also incredible in so many ways. And so um, uh, we also wanted to recognize the involvement of of the Ali'i with the community of Kalapapa. They, too, have been left out of this history. And, you know, as Colette Higgins, you know, she's just, this is a, her specialty and has brought that history back into it. And, you know, that's what we hope that this exhibit does as well. It shows how the royal family was also concerned about what was happening at Kalaupapa, the separation of the families, and, and making sure that the, that the people, their beloved people, that's what they called, that's what they called the, the people of Kalaupapa, our beloved people and uh, make sure that they were well taken care of. And so it's, it's a really, it's an incredible history, you know. So we, we forget so much that so much of the history of Kalapapa is about love and kindness and caring for one another. Sometimes those, those qualities get left out. And I'm sure as the number of residents down there at Kalapapa dwindle, I think they're down to less than a half a dozen actually there on, on the island in that settlement, you know, as they go back and forth uh, between Honolulu. But there is, you know, concern for the future and what happens to that settlement and just the concern over the, the story then that is told and preserved for the future. 
Yes, and you know, one of the things we say is that, you know, yes, there are a smaller number of people living at Kalapapa, but we like to say that there's still about 8,000 people there with us. Because when you're at Kalapapa, you feel them. When I'm out in the graveyards and, and seeing the names on these stones, it's remarkable how many times after we notice a name that we haven't noticed before, shortly after that, we hear from their family. I mean, it's like these people are still with us in, in different ways. And so we don't like to, to talk about that, you know, there's only a few people, even though there are physically, there's, there's a, a smaller number of people, but we, we feel so many of these people all around us. And, you know, that's what the memorial is going to do. It's going to bring back all of these names. And when you walk up to the memorial, you're going to see nearly 8,000 names all in front of you. And, you know, I think it's just going to be a remarkable thing when we get the memorial built. Mm, that's like so chicken skin, just thinking it of it now. It is chicken skin. And we've just come off of some important milestones, I think, with the history of, of isolation, you know, last year the anniversary of that, and um, lots to look forward to just to preserve that story down there in that settlement. Absolutely. We hope that people be able to get out to Windward Community College before the exhibit closes, and, you know, keep, we'll, we'll, pub, we'll publish on our, certainly on our website when the exhibit opens next. Okay, and, and we hope that'll happen uh, later this year? Yes, sooner rather than later. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much, Valerie, you know, for sharing this bit of history and keeping it alive and, and connecting the Ohana. Thanks so much. That was Val Monson, who'll be giving a talk tomorrow at Windward Community College as the Kalopapa exhibit draws to a close. Monson hopes families who have ties to the settlement will turn out and share their stories. The exhibit, which uh, explores the efforts of the monarchy to care for the Hansen's disease patients, it's a remarkable story. Iolani Palace tells us it plans to showcase the exhibit this spring. We have run out of time, but we do love your feedback and your ideas for stories. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And if you want to re-listen to any of our segments, look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.